0: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I hope that you will be treated today by uh, this uh, special selection uh, that I've chosen for you. I thought today that we would talk about the topic of prayer, and I know that uh, prayer is near and dear to many of you, and Bishop Sheen gives a reflection on the topic of persevering prayer, and we need to be persevering in our prayer. Sometimes it seems that we need to pray for years for a certain intention, but it is worth it. Uh, Patience is a virtue. And uh, so uh, Bishop Sheen will enlighten us a little bit today on persevering prayer. And so before we uh, listen to Bishop Sheen, let us pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. So may I encourage you now to sit back and relax, and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: The subject today is related to prayer and the spiritual life. Apropos prayer, uh, this actually happened to a theatrical family whom I knew in New York. A few weeks before Christmas, a friend of the family, an atheist, and also in the theater, came to visit the family and... He asked the little boy what he wanted for Christmas. I must tell you, this was in New York, not in Texas. The little boy said he wanted snow. Should I explain what snow is? And the atheist friend said, Who's going to give you snow? He said, I'll ask Jesus for snow, and he will give me snow. And the atheist said, There isn't any God. There isn't any Jesus, he can't give you snow. And the little boy said, just for that, I'm going to ask for snow. You wait and see on Christmas Day, I will have snow. On Christmas morning, the atheist friend came back. The little boy was up in his pajamas, looking out of the window. His nose flattened against the pane. It was snowing outside. And he was saying, boy, Jesus, boy, Jesus. I also know of a little girl who prayed for a thousand dollars for Christmas. And her prayers were not answered. And the unbelieving father said to her, well, God did not answer your prayers, did he? She said, oh, yes, he did. God said no." Now let us examine ourselves. How much time a day do you spend in prayer? Now suppose you subtracted that formal prayers. For example, the office, which belongs to the church for us priests, and mass, which is not a prayer really, but an action. Outside of that, how much do we pray a day? There was a survey made in England in the last few months among Protestant ministers and priests, and the average time was six and a half minutes a day. Now let me ask you a question related to that, particularly to the priests and the nuns. Some of you have made retreats for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 30, 40 years. Can you think of any practical resolution that you took at the end of retreat that you've ever kept? Just one, that you ever kept for one year or six months? I'm sure that 99% of you will answer, there's no resolution that you took during the retreat has been kept. Why not? Because we treat her like health congresses. Speaker after speaker gets up and said, Let's be healthy. But there's no concrete practical rule about it. So today we're going to get down to something nitty gritty about prayer. Which is really the whole purpose of this retreat I only give retreats for one reason And you will find out what that is in a little while Why is it there's so much apathy among us Why is such a declension in the spiritual life When we are ordained when we were professed We were inspired by love, and then we sort of leveled off. Leveled off into mediocrity, which is death. No more love, very much like a marriage. The honeymoon, and then after that, not very much of an open declaration of love. As an old New Hampshire farmer sitting on a back porch one evening said to his wife, He said, Sadie, I don't think I've told you in 32 years that I love you. Why is it that we go into this decline, fall away from love, and when the mind leaves, then the body leaves? There's no date, for example, when any priest leaves the church. You cannot fix a date. That's only his body, that's not important. When did his mind leave? When did that break? That was a long time before. Saint John tells us in his epistle, they left us because they did not belong to us from the beginning. We have within ourselves an evil principle that we have to fight against life is really the sum of forces that resist death and as we give up physical exercise and the care of the body so we give up the care of the spirit and this evil principle operates the mole for example the naturalists tell us once had eyes to see but the mold sold to gravel down in the bowels of the earth. Nature, as it seated in judgment, said, Very well, if you will not use the talent that has been given you, it shall be taken away. The penalty of neglect. We read in the Epistle to the Hebrews How shall we escape if we neglect? Neglect. We do not lose our souls simply by doing bad things, we lose our souls by omission. So in judgment, thou didst not, thou didst not, thou didst not, thou didst not, the unburied talent. Very often our sins cause a rebound and we get back again, but when we allow this evil principle just to work out, then we become like the crustacea, which is an animal in the. Mammoth Caves of Kentucky It apparently has eyes to see But If you run a scalpel across the eye You find behind it desiccated nerves It lived in darkness And the talent was taken away If someone has taken poison The antidote is brought to him It doesn't make any difference whether he throws the antidote out of the window or whether he just neglects it. The poison is operating and it will have its effect. And so it is with us. It may not be positive neglect. As a matter of fact, it is not. We just fall away. This is the great tragedy, I think today you can see people slipping they do not know it that's the interesting thing they do not know it perhaps they will not permit themselves to see it but it is also true that they are unconscious of the fact that they're on the way out how many how many priests for example that have left will ever come back How many sisters that are are giving up all signs of consecration will ever come back to the discipline of the church? They are very much like Samson. Read the story of Samson in 13th chapter of Judges. There was a man who was physically endowed by God. You find in the scriptures that the athlete has a gift from God. As artists do and singers do, they do not thank God, but it's a gift. And he had the gift of strength and he became a Nazarene, which meant that he would not touch wine, he would be a celibate, and he would dedicate himself to God. And the symbol of that that sign of consecration for a Nazarene uh, was the, the long hair. Some people think that the strength of Samson was in the hair. That had nothing to do with it. It was just like, the, for example, the veil of a nun or the, the collar of a priest. Only a symbol, it was all. And finally he became involved in different ways. And finally his hair was cut off. And he didn't lose his strength simply because the hair was cut off. But that was the end of his consecration, symbolized by this tonsure. And he just wants to do one last act. And he tried to be strong again. And the scripture says, he knew not that the spirit had left him. He knew it not. And the same thing was said of Saul. He knew not that the spirit had left him. So we go downgrade in a, in a very easy way. As Virgil said, the, the road to hell is very slippery. No one, for example, none of us ever take a resolution we're going to be ignorant. We just don't read. None of us ever take a resolution; would not be holy. We just do not commune with God. So, inasmuch, therefore, as this apathy has seized us, and how how it has actually possessed our culture today, some men die to the sword. And Others perish in the flames, but most men go down inch by inch in play and little games, and finally we find ourselves at the end of life, without any great love, and it is only a a habit, a memory, like an anniversary. Now what are we going to do about it? You've made retreats, you've had conferences, you read books, but you have not changed. Now let us begin to change. And in order to change, we're going to recommend something special. every single day of your life, and this for priests and this for nuns, and to a limited degree to the laity. The mothers with many children, it's not possible, but you could put aside fifteen minutes, but I'm not going to speak of that. You make your own application out of what I am speaking about for the priests and nuns. Every single day of your life, without exception, Make one continuous holy hour before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. Continuous. It may not be done in 15-minute bits. I will give you the reason why later on. The Mass for the priests is not included. Could be included for the nuns and the laity. But the Mass is not included for the priest. He could begin his hour before the Mass and continue it afterwards because the Eucharistic Mass would not be an interruption to a Holy Hour before the Blessed Sacrament. What is to be done during that hour? I will give some general recommendations later on. But I want to impress upon you the reasons for the Holy Hour. First of all, we are living in a busy, excited world. A world that is gauged to interruption, so that we have to get the news on the hour. Life is fissioned. Ever since we fissioned the atom, our lives have become split. The result is we hard, find it hard to pray, we look at television, we see psychedelic images, a repetition of images that have no sequence at all. The non world that simply destroys human reason. We have no, no attention span. Being given so much to television and news, we like this excitement, this particular moment and then another one another. But our lives are never coordinated, in fact we are hardly in the possession of ourselves. Hence, we have to have a continuous hour in order that we may, it takes almost 15-20 minutes to get rid of the world when we come in to pray. The dust of the earth is on us, the spirit of the world. So it takes fifteen or twenty minutes to escape before we have inscape. Escape is taken from the world word ex kappa. A kappa is a cloak, and ex is running out of a cloak so you escape, and in kappa is being caught in the cloak. First part, therefore, is almost escape. Then inscape. the holy hour is exemplified by the our Lord meeting the disciples of Emmaus this beautiful story in the gospel of Luke it is Sunday afternoon Easter Sunday afternoon here some of the disciples are on their way to Emmaus a walk of seven miles from Jerusalem disappointed men and they meet a stranger the stranger speaks to them and says why are you so glum three times in the course of that description in Luke the word discussion is used they were discussing they were talking they were debating talk 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 and our Lord said to them why are you so glum they say to him are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened Haven't you read the press? Don't you ever look at TV? Don't you know the latest news? William, he thought, was the savior of Israel. What savior? The political savior. When we lose the spiritual vision, we get into politics. We thought he was going to save Israel. Then our blessed Lord began to unfold to them the Psalms and David, Psalms of David and the prophets. And then finally our Lord said to them, Did you not know that the Son of Man must suffer in order to enter into his glory? Then they recognize him at the breaking of the bread, which is suggestive of the Eucharist, and then they are reluctant to let him go. Now this is prayer life. When we commit to make the holy hour, we meet a stranger. It's hard, the world is with us. We have the news of the world, all discussions are on our back. And then after a while, we pick up our scriptures. We cannot meditate without scriptures. cannot. We read the scriptures, then we begin to understand who Christ is. Know you not that the Son of Man must suffer in order to enter into his glory? And then he's revealed to us, Eucharistically, and we are reluctant finally to let him go. In making the continuous holy hour, therefore, do not think you can come in without any preparation, I mean without any book, and spend an hour. The hour will bore you. You go to food for table. You go to the table for food, rather, and you have to have something to nourish you. So I have left over in the reading room, fathers, William Barclay. You'll find the books over there on the table. Barclay has about 17 volumes on the scriptures. William Barclay is probably a Presbyterian, professor of scripture at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, a great scriptural scholar. He knows Hebrew, he knows Latin, he knows Greek, he knows history, and he has the Spirit of Christ. And he will take a syncope or a few verses out of scripture, say five lines, ten lines, and then give a commentary on it. And there's always spiritual content. You read other scriptural commentators, you cut the page and ink comes out, not blood. So when you come in to make the holy hour, bring in Barclay. Last week, week ago today, I was talking in Palm Beach, and I went to the into the church before mass to make the holy hour. And some priest tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, uh, "If you don't have a Barclay, here's one." He had carried it with him from Philadelphia. Now, do not say to me, "He's not, uh, he's not Catholic." Listen, these men know Scripture better than we do. The Catholic didn't put in that communion rail. Some atheists put in those windows. Some Presbyterian plastered those walls. that were using this as a house of God. find maybe something in it that maybe offends pious ears. But we have some books, too, which offend pious ears. They have no monopoly on them, believe me, today. I would recommend to you getting Barclay two volumes of Matthew, one of Mark, one of Luke, and two of John, and then all the rest. You'd have an excellent commentary. Believe me, your congregation would say, "Ooh, my, what a preacher!" Where did he get his notes? From Bishop Sheen? Did he take his lectures down on tape? No found them out yourself in meditation believe me when you spend an hour here meditating on the gospel of the following Sunday and do that for four or five days a week when you get up you're full of love and full of spirit then you can preach you've got power so this is the first reason for a holy hour you need continuity of prayer a second reason for the holy hour intercession We are all united to Christ the priest victim, religious and laity alike, and we have the burden of the world on us. We therefore have to intercede for the world and for sinners, when we put on a chasuble for mass, there are six hundred. 800 million Chinese hanging onto that chasuble. All the communists of the world are at the end of our stole. The sick in our parish, those who ask us to pray, and we intercede for them. That's the second reason. The third reason, and the most important of all, the the hour whenever the word hour is used in scripture and it is used seven times in John you will always find it used in relationship to evil God has his day the devil has his hour and our blessed Lord said to his mother, "My hour is not yet come." I'll explain that tomorrow when I talk about our blessed Lady. Then, on another occasion, just a week before our blessed Lord went into His passion, when there was the voice of the Father, which some thought was thunder, He said, "Shall I pray to be delivered from this hour?" When Judas came to betray him, he said, this is your hour, all you can do is turn out the lights of the world. Hour always means evil. When our blessed Lord, twelve years of age, was in the temple, he said he was about the things of his father, his father's house, his father's business. He was under the Father's will until the hour came. When the hour came, he was under man's will. The crucifixion is what men think of Christ, the resurrection is what the Father thinks of him. So the hour, therefore, is associated with evil, and believe me, there's evil in the world. Tomorrow morning I will tell you about the demonic, but not tell you everything. So we are the Lord, we've got to make reparation for the evil of the world. The demonic in the church, the demonic outside of the church. Our blessed Lord, therefore, ask, can you not watch one hour with me? The only thing he ever asked his disciples to do. And they didn't do it. Three times he came back to see if they were keeping him company. He counted on James because of his steadfastness. He counted on John because of his love. And he counted on Peter because of his loyalty. But they slept. So he's saying to us, Can you not watch one hour with me? Because of the evil in the world and to repair the satanic influence. This is the reason of the hour. This therefore is not something arbitrary. This is biblical. I have no reason for ever giving a retreat, except to induce the religious and priests to make the holy hour every day. And if, if you do not take this resolution to make the holy hour, then this retreat is a failure. What do I care if you say, oh, sure, his talks are marvelous, he was interesting, he was entertaining. What good does that do? I'm not here on the stage to be a alien. We've got the interest of Christ and the Church at stake, and I know that priests are remade by the hour, and they're making it throughout the country. And if during the holy hour we prayed for those brethren of ours that are about to leave and have left, maybe some of them would come back. If the religious restored it, then they wouldn't, we wouldn't have so many nuns, for example, that want to be identified with the world. This new century into which we're moving is going to be a century that belongs to Marquis de Sade and to the Dostoevstian characters. I know that's putting it in an oblique kind of way, but it's only for those who understand. And it is not going to be easy. And the Lord is depending upon the few. This, then, is the retreat, and you will hear about it in every single conference. From now on, you will be challenged to do it, and it is remaking the clergy of this country, for many of them are doing it. Some even who were thinking of leaving started it. And then they received the additional grace. So in conclusion, do not make the holy hour on your own and under your own power. Use spiritual literature and not just... Uh, pious books about virtue for example a book on how to be humble and you get proud that you're humble there's no point in ever meditating about abstract virtues about faith or hope or charity any of these things with the only thing we can love as a person no one ever fell in love with a the theorem of geometry you can't love a syllogism It's sorry rhetoric for the multitude How do we acquire virtues? We love Christ. Then when we love Christ, then we become virtuous. This is the center of spirituality. If we began to preaching from our pulpits instead of sociology, politics, and the cheap things of the world, and our people in turn would be reformed. So think about it, for it is a challenge, and it's hard sometimes. About the only time it's hard, really, is when you're on vacation. The less you have to do, the harder it is, because then you've put it off. If you were kept very busy, then you know you have to get it in very early. Well, you say, I'm very busy, and I, I don't have time. Well, you have to get up an hour earlier, that's all. Get used to that. Then it becomes so automatic you hardly ever think of the hour. They will not all be good. I've been so tired sometimes I had to walk up and down the church for an hour to keep awake. But even so, we're dogs outside of the Master's door. If He calls us, we're there. There are not five days a year that I can sleep in the daytime. I remember one of them very well, I was on my way to Lourdes from Belgium and I had two hours in Paris to make the Holy Hour and I went to the church of Saint-Roch at two o'clock and I was tired and I sat down and I woke up at three right on the dot and I said to the good Lord did I make a Holy Hour. And my angel said, well, that's the way the apostles made their first one. We'll take it. So the point is never to skip it. Never, never, never. Regardless of the difficulty. I gave a retreat once in the diocese where the pastor and the curate didn't speak. Well, they both resolved to make a holy hour. And they'd forgotten during the day And they went out Opened the church door At eleven o'clock at night And became friends Like Pilate and Herod But it can be done And to say that we're busy Is the poorest excuse That we can give Because think of the time That we waste. The secret of getting things done Is to know what to leave undone time spent on a newspaper time before television waste 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 of precious time it could be used to make ourselves happy by being close to the Lord make ourselves effective and powerful now I say it is possible to do it I have not missed a holy hour in 53 years every single day so it can be done i'm not saying they were perfect many of them were imperfect but at any rate i heard the blessed lord saying can you not watch an hour when he went into the garden scripture says he went a little farther that's what we priests and religious have to do we've got to go a little farther every single day of my life I pray to the good Lord that I will drop dead before the blessed sacrament on some Saturday or some feast of Our Lady. I do not know whether, and at 80, I do not know whether the good Lord will answer my prayer. But believe me, after all the hours that I have made, if he doesn't answer my prayer, he's going to be mighty embarrassed when he meets me.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection on persevering prayer. And so I thought I would just share with you from the archives another presentation, and this one is entitled The Problem with the Church Today. Please enjoy.
1: Because we live in days of rapidism
0: indecision,
1: and almost confusion, may I try to calm your spirits by presenting to you the problem of the church today. First of all, remember that the church undergoes a tremendous change every 500 years does history go back to the first 500 year period and you have the aftermath of the fall of Rome the church was then so upset that Jerome in the cave of Bethlehem thought the end of the world had come St. Augustine spent 18 years writing the City of God, trying to explain the fall of Rome. In fact, he talked about Rome so much that as he, as he journeyed about northern Africa, the people said, "See, de Roma. Oh, if you would only shut up about Rome. Then we come to the second 500 year period the Muslim invasion. The Muslims came, first of all, to within 120 miles of Poitiers, and then later on swung the crescent up to the very gates of Vienna. Along with that, there was the Eastern Schism. The Eastern Schism, begun by Photius and Micus Serialarius. and they'd break away the Eastern Church even to this hour. In the third period, there was the religious revolution, the decay of morals, the decline of religion, far worse than today. There was needed a reformation. Reformers very often reformed the wrong thing. What was needed was a reformation of the way men lived. Not the way men were thinking. There was nothing wrong with the faith. There was something wrong with morals. And now we are living in the fourth period. And the church today is undergoing change principally because, as we shall show show in a moment, of the impact of the world upon us. In each of these periods, the church had great errors or heresies to meet. In the first 500 years, the church always was battling with what we have called Christological heresies. Namely, how many intellects did Christ have? How many wills, how many persons, how many natures? This was the struggle with Arianism, of course, creating the greatest disturbance of all. Then in the second 500-year period, the difficulty that we had to face was not with the historical Christ, but it was rather with the head of the mystical body. So the Eastern Churches up with the head. In the third 500-year period, our difficulty was not with the head, it was with the body. So the church split up into many sects. First period, the historical Christ. Second period, the head of the mystical body, the Holy Father. Third period, the body itself. Our time, what? The world, our environment, the impact of science, technology, eroticism, and the spirit of the modern world that God is dead. It is really the easiest of any of the enemies we've had, and it is a tragedy that so many succumb. What we are face to face with is this, we are living at the end of Christendom, now do not go out and say Bishop Sheen said we're at the end of Christianity, that's the way the newspapers would put it, I said we're at the end of Christendom, what is Christendom? Christendom is the political, economic, social life of nations influenced by the gospel ethic. Christianity is the leaven in the Mass. But with the death of Christendom, that leaven is disappearing. We are not at the end of Christianity. But I think we are at the end of Christmas. 25, 30 years ago, who would have thought of abortion? 40 years ago, a divorced woman came into St. Thomas's church, Episcopal Church in New York City, and the whole congregation turned their backs to the divorced woman. The decline of morals public decency. This means that Christianity today is not the letter. We will not have time to say what we should be and what we sometimes fail to recognize because worldliness has too much gotten hold of us. We are really a separated people. And that's the meaning of ecclesia, exclesia, being called out. We are not of the world. But today we say we are of the world. So we're contributing to a great extent. Now, what are some of the consequences of this change in this fourth period? First of all, we have become apathetic, there are no fires. we become very broad-minded, indifferent. Cedric Kennedy wrote a poem once comparing Christ coming to Golgotha and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. He said, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. So it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the streets without a soul to see, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. It was more endurable than the indifference of our day. Thou art neither hot nor cold. Therefore will I spew thee out of my mouth. I quoted Yeats who said that today the good are indifferent. The weak are filled with passionate intensity. Baudelieu said that the world would end by giving a great yawn and the devil would come out of the mouth. T.S. Eliot, the poet, said the world will end not with a bang, but with a whimper. And our Lord said we will be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage just as people did in the day of Noah. So one of the consequences of... This fourth period is we lack fire. If there is any fire and intensity, and if there is a great love of the absolute, that fire and intensity is applied to the political order and not to Christ. No great fire for him. But any political, economic subject... ...and immediately one is almost on the verge of conflict. That's the first consequence. A second consequence... ...is... ...what might be called... ...the holy organization of theology. By that I mean making theology today. One does not become known by saying that two and two make four. But one does become known by saying that two and two make five. Ibsen said it once, and he was quoted all over the world. Chesterton answered him and said, how do you know that two and two make four, except by adding over and over again? How do you know that two and two make five? Except by adding over and over again, two and two make four, there is a fixity. But today we've gotten away from scripture, in theology, we are answering one another's questions. We are not discussing theological issues. one theologian writes this another writes this and the result is the depth of theology is lost Saint Paul was very much disturbed at that even in his own day, when he wrote to Timothy and in his first letter I think it was the sixth chapter if anyone is teaching otherwise, and will not give his mind a wholesome precept. I mean those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to good religious teaching, I call him a pompous ignoramus. He's morbidly keen on mere verbal questions and quibblings, which give rise to jealousy, quarreling, slander, base suspicion, and endless rambling. Typical of men who have let their reasoning powers become atrophied, apathied, and have lost the grip of truth. We've given up scripture. Believe me, there are three things that are absolutely necessary in a well-developed Christian life, and a line clock to get you up for the holy hour. The Eucharist to keep your faith. And the Bible to make you learn it. If you notice how very little of scripture is quoted today. So this is another effect. But it is only a certain type of theology. It would be quite wrong to condemn all. And the third Effect of this modern crisis is the decay of the science of catechetics. As I told you before, we start with the community. Marxism has finally influenced us, the primacy of the mass. I mean the group, the community. The assumption that if we know Christian doctrine, then we will be Christians. Our blessed Lord never said, if you know my truth, you will do my will. But he did say, if you do my will, you will know my truth. Believe me, obedience is the condition of knowing science. No scientist ever dictates to nature. He lets nature talk to him. So it's the training of the will that we have to develop in our theology. The reintroduction into catechetics of a bit of discipline and order and law. That for our contemporary time. Now, how are we to feel about it? When we say we are at the end of Christendom? When we bemoan indifference? The decay of theology and catechetics? Are we to be sad? No. These are great and wonderful days in which to be alive. Wonderful. Forty years ago it was easy to be a Christian. The very air we breathed was inspired by the Christian ethic. We could walk safely on our streets. Not troubled by dishonesty in the merchant world. Marriages were rather solid. It was easy to be Christian. The atmosphere was Christian. It was healthy. Today it is not. And today only the strong survive. Some of them are going along with the currents of secularism. Listen, dead bodies float downstream. Anyone can be with it. It takes a live body to resist the current, And that's why these are great days. And who are the strongest in the church? Not the priests, though America has a very good priesthood. Not the sisters. They are fairly good, but they've been more infected with secularism than the priests. Who? The laity. The laity is the hope of the Church. It always has been in every great crisis. The greatest crisis the Church ever faced was Arianism. Arianism very simply was the notion that Christ is nothing but a good man. When the hypostatic union was defined in 325, there immediately began to be a number of bishops and priests who became Aryan. As a matter of fact, most of the bishops of Spain and Portugal and France and Germany became at least semi-Arians. We were not sure that Christ was God, maybe he was just the man. There were ten provincial councils that were held in the church up from that time until the year 385, and every one of those provincial councils became Aryan or semi-Aryan. Never before was the church so near a collapse. The big council of Constantinople was held in 385. The laity gathered for it, and every bishop that came in, they gave him a painting of our lady. And they said to the bishop, you have been discussing the question of whether or not Christ was just a perfect man. We will tell you who the perfect creature. is. It's
0: Mary. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another reflection-filled show with the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We hope you come back next week, and until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.